29 AD, there was one about to change the world. Fully man, fully God, Jesus. Next to him was a friend who witnessed everything. He saw early miracles. He sat at his right hand. His own eyes saw Jesus transfigured. The very heart of Christ was poured out to him, and he was there at the cross on the day history was altered. These are the words and the story of John. Thanks, Bill, very much. Uh, guys, it's an honor to be up here again. Some of you have been coming for a little bit. I've had the joy and the privilege of doing this a couple times. Uh, and in fact, last time, some of you may remember, I shared a little story about my mom and uh, her battle with cancer. And the last time I spoke, she had just gone wedding dress shopping with my oldest niece. And uh, last weekend, the wedding happened. So there's my mom and my niece. Thank you, guys. I honestly didn't think I'd get a response. I figured, like, if we were talking to a bunch of women, they'd be like, oh, you know, but you guys clap. That's cool. So thank you guys for doing that. So uh, my mom, if you guys remember, you know, she's been battling cancer for 17 years. And uh, you maybe not can't tell it there. She's in a wheelchair. Um, and man, if you would have told me 17 years ago that my mom would see Rebecca get married, I would have said there's no way. Just would not have thought that that was going to happen. But God answers some prayers in amazing ways. And uh, I know many of you out there, I want, to be, I want to say this. I know many of you out there have a different story with cancer. You know, I know many of you, your parent, your spouse, um, your friend, maybe some of you, a child, uh, didn't get 17 years. And if that's your case, I'm sorry. Because I know how much that has meant to my family. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm sorry if that's not what God, you know, maybe if he didn't choose to answer your prayer that way. Um, but it's been really great for our family. And last weekend was quite a celebration. And we had a lot of conversations last weekend. But one of the things that really we kept coming back to was how God is in control. God is in control. He's always in control. And so uh, last weekend, you know, after on Sunday, after uh, Becca and her husband had opened some wedding gifts, after my sister's other kids had gone back to college, uh, my mom and dad and my sister and brother-in-law and Jenny and I sat down because as I said, my mom, you know, 17 years of cancer treatment, she's got a bad back. Um, she's not in physically great shape anymore. And she's getting to the point where she almost needs full-time care. And to this point, my dad's been able to do that. But my dad is having uh, knee replacement surgery here in a couple weeks. And so we're having some conversations like, what does the future look like for their health? And I know some of you in here have probably had that conversation before with parents, or maybe you're going through something similar like that now. And, uh, and that's hard. Those are hard conversations. We had some tears. Some tears were shed, but it was really good conversation. And, and, you know, I don't know what it is for you, but I know all of us are going through some hard things right now. Some of you, it may be something similar. It may be something with your parents where it's really hard right now. Some of you, it's the other way around. You're the parent and you're going through something really hard with your son or daughter right now. Some of you uh, maybe have a marriage that is struggling right now. Some of you, you know, Bill referenced, I was single till I was 41. Some of you are still single right now and you're like, God, I, I just would really like to find a spouse. And so some of you are wrestling with that. Others of you, you know what? I know that every morning when you get up, there's a voice in your head that says you're not good enough. And that's the hard thing in your life right now. And all of us, I think, get up some mornings and say, wow, I'm not good enough. 
So whatever it is, there's hard in life. It's hard. Well, tonight, guys, we're going to go into a period of Jesus' life where his life gets really, really hard. I'm not saying it's been easy to this point, but his life takes a turn tonight into something that is more difficult than we can even understand or imagine, you know? But through all of that, he willingly walks this road into this hardest part of his life that we can't even fathom or imagine, and yet he does it willingly. So I wanna look at that tonight. I wanna talk about a couple things and just see if we can you know, pick up some nuggets out of this scripture that we can apply to the hard times in our life and help us walk through those moments better. So would you guys pray with me a second and then we'll dive in. Father God, thank you so much for these men, for my brothers. Thanks for these guys being here on a Tuesday night to come and study your word. God, we're blessed. We get to be here free to study your word, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we can learn from it, that you teach us. Uh, Lord, help us to just trust you um, and help us to be obedient to what you call us to. And God, I pray for your Holy Spirit. Like Bill said, help me to get out of the way. And um, Lord, I just pray that by your spirit, maybe something I say, these guys could take to heart tonight and, um, and just help us in the week ahead. So Lord, thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys. So like I said, we, uh, we get started here tonight. And uh, the first thing that I want us to see in this story is that Jesus is in control. No one is forcing him to do this. You know, for the last five weeks, um, let me jump in here, verse one first. So we see this right out of verse one, right? Verse one in chapter 18, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. So for the last five weeks, we've been studying this very intimate setting in the upper room where Jesus is with his disciples. Think about what's happened in the last five weeks. He started, he washed his disciples' feet. Then he said, hey, I got a room in my father's house for you. Then he said, hey, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And then, oh, by the way, I'm going to pray over them. I mean, think about that. That happened in this upper room. All this stuff, amazing stuff, right? I mean, can you imagine being in that room? Could you imagine what that had been like? I mean, that's the kind of night that you don't want to end. Like you're just with Jesus, the disciples, intimate. They just want to stay there. Last week when we had this wedding, after the wedding celebration, right, there's a reception. And guess what? The reception, we got a time. The reception had to end. It was midnight. If we didn't get out of there at midnight, dollars started racking up, right? Fees started, extra fees. So the reception closed down at 1030. Everybody who's family, guess what? When you're the family of the bride, guess what you get to do? You get to clean up after the reception, right? So we're hauling plants around and cleaning stuff up. By 1130, yeah, and it's Dutch, so we're cheap, yep. So we didn't hire to have it done, all right? So, you know, so we're hauling plants around, you know, and by 1130, we're out. And so we made our midnight deadline. Guys, there was no deadline in the upper room. Jesus didn't have that thing reserved until midnight, and then he had to be out. He didn't care about paying an extra fee. That's not the situation he finds himself in. Jesus willingly got up and he said, hey guys, let's go, it's time to go. His hour had come and he willingly walked out of there. Nobody forced him to. He did it under his own volition. And then in verse four, let's go down a little further. We read, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, the, the soldiers come out, all right, and they come out and they're like, hey, we're looking for Jesus. And Jesus is like, I'm him. 
He doesn't fight them. He doesn't resist them. Imagine this scene, right? The soldiers with torches and lanterns and weapons that are coming out of them. If you study this, it's Passover. It's full moon. What happened when it's full moon? Do you need light? Not really, right? You see, it's full moon. They don't need all this stuff. Why do they have torches and lanterns and weapons? Because they fully expect Jesus to flee, to run, to hide. But that's not what he does. I mean, that's what any of us would do, but that's not what Jesus does. When they ask him, when he says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus, he's like, I am he. He gives himself up. So some of us, we may read this story. You may read this story. Maybe non-believers for sure would read this story and say, wow, Satan is winning. He's winning in this moment. Jesus is captured. He's going to die. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Satan isn't willing, winning. Jesus is willingly giving up his life to defeat Satan forever. Judas didn't trick Jesus. The soldiers didn't overpower Jesus. Caiaphas and Annas and Herod and Pilate, all these people that we see that put him on trial, they didn't convict Jesus. Satan didn't win. That's not what happened. Jesus is in complete control of every aspect of his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. And guys, he is still in control today. You know, in our lesson next week, Jesus dies. And then the week after that, he's resurrected. He's alive. He's alive, guys. He's alive. He was in control then. He's alive now. And he's still in control today. Hebrews 13, 8 reminds us, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if he's in control yesterday, which is so clear in this passage, guys, you can't read this and say he's not in control. Then he's in control today, and he's going to be in control forever. You know what, guys? We want to get all worked up over politics, right? I'm mad. I'm passionate. I got a lot of anger sometimes, some of us. Remember, Jesus is in control. Some of you, you've got kids that are making bad decisions. I know we hear from, you know, we hear from you guys. You got kids that are making bad decisions and you're scared and you know there's going to be some consequences. Remember, Jesus is in control. Some of you, the stock market, this is my career, my life. The stock market is down. The economy might go into recession. Jesus is in control. I'm dealing with my mom and dad and their health, and I don't know what's going to happen, and I'm scared and I'm worried for them. But I need to remind myself that Jesus is in control. So my question tonight for you guys is, who's in control of your life tonight? Are you in control? Or is Jesus in control? Where is he calling you to give up control of something tonight? There's something that you're hanging on to that you're just, I got this. I'm going to control this thing. And Jesus is saying, let go. Let go. I got it. What is that for you? Where are you not trusting him tonight? Is it with your family, your career, your finances, your dating life? Where are you too scared to let go and trust God? because it might mean having to change the lifestyle that you've become accustomed to. You know, one of the problems we have as men when it comes to giving up control is that our culture has created an image of what it means to be a real man. Real men solve problems. Real men don't back down. Real men are tough, and real men are successful. And you know what? I agree 100% with all those things. 
because we see Jesus do every one of those things. He did solve problems. He didn't back down. He was tough. He was successful. The problem is we, us, our culture has taken what it means to be a real man. We've taken those characteristics. And then we said, that man looks like this. And we've created an image to it. And we put an image to what it looks like to be a real man and says, if you don't look like that, then you're not a real man. Brothers, don't let an image from an American culture determine whether or not you are a real man. Let the word of God, let this, let the word of God and Jesus determine if you are a real man or not. Solve problems where you need to. Don't back down if it compromises your family or your faith. Don't measure success by your money. Measure it by how you are leading your family, how you are responding to the call of God in your life, how you are supporting those who God has put in your life and in your care, in your sphere of influence. How are you preparing yourself today to be the husband that God has intended for one of his daughters someday? That's how you measure whether you're a real man or not. Why do I say this, all this? Because we see from Jesus that being in complete control is so counter to what our culture is being, beating in our heads today. Jesus' version of control and what our culture says is control is so different. He was in complete control and yet he gave up his life. The American culture would say, if you're in control, you don't give up your life. That's a counter. He wasn't wimpy or powerless, guys. He wasn't. When he asked the soldiers, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He responded with, I am. And what was likely hundreds of soldiers, you know what they did? You read it. They fell to the ground. They fell to the ground with his words, I am. That's how powerful he was. When Peter cut off the guy's ear, Jesus tells him to put his sword away. And he says, do you not think that I can appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Second Kings, let's take some perspective on this. Second Kings 19, 13, 35, 19, 35 says, and that night an angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 Assyrians in the camp. One angel 185,000 men. And Jesus says, I'll call on 12 legions of angels. Power, authority. You think he's afraid? He's scared? Nah, not at all, right? But he did it all with humility. That's the kicker. He did it all with humility. Not meekness, humility. And through humility, he actually achieves the greatest victory in the history of the world. In humility, he gives himself up to defeat sin and Satan. And in so doing, he guarantees that one day, all of us who believe in him, all of us, if you don't stand here, if you're sitting here and you don't believe in Jesus right now, I'm sorry, you're not included in this. But if you sit here and you believe in Jesus, then tonight, you know what? We have the promise that one day we will spend eternity with him in a new heaven and a new earth because he willingly gave himself up. So where in your life is God calling you to lead with humility like Jesus? What victory are you trying to achieve tonight through selfish ambition and pride? Because that's the opposite of humility. Philippians 2, 3 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. 
So how will you change your attitude, your actions, the words you use to lead your family, your children, your coworkers, your friends to lead out of a perspective of humility going forward? The second thing I want us to see here is this contrast between Peter and Jesus. It's pretty cool how John, John's the only one who does this, but he makes this great contrast, right? Because he goes, Jesus, Peter, Jesus, Peter, back to Jesus. Because the stories are happening simultaneously. It's happening at the same time. And John just lays it out beautifully for us, right? So before we jump in here, let me just say one thing about Peter. We throw Peter under the bus all the time, right? We like to throw Peter under the bus. Yeah, he's a good guy. He's got a, he's got a big target on his back, right? And he does some things not right. Don't get me wrong. Peter fails here. He denies Jesus. That's an epic failure for a guy who spent three years with Jesus. But as that one question in our lesson brought out tonight, how many times do we deny Jesus to? My actions? Yeah. Sometimes, maybe even our words. And we have this, the Bible, and the Holy Spirit. Peter didn't have the Bible. Yeah, he was with Jesus, but he didn't have the Bible and he didn't have the Holy Spirit. In fact, as we talked about in our group tonight, when he gets the Holy Spirit, he's a different man. So I think we got a lot more or a lot less excuses than Peter does. So one of the things, you know, so I'm not going to throw him under the bus, but I want to learn from him. And that's what we can do. We can learn from Peter. So one of the things we need to give Peter credit for here is that he's still there. He's there. All the disciples flee from the garden except Peter and John. And John apparently has some kind of connection here that puts his position in this story. He's a little safer than what Peter is. Peter's kind of on his own. One commentary when talking about this scene said, Peter loves Jesus enough not to flee, but he's too afraid to get too close to the fire. Let me repeat that. Peter loves Jesus enough not to flee, but he's too afraid to get too close to the fire. I don't know about you guys, but when I read that, I'm like, yep, that's me. That's me sometimes, right? I, I, I'm caught between love and fear myself. I love Jesus. And guys, I know you do too. I love Jesus. And yet I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of if, if, I, if I confess or if I come across as too Jesus-y or, or if, if, I, if I reach out to some guy and say something to him about Jesus, like, what's, how's, he, how's he gonna react? What's gonna happen? What, what comforts am I gonna have to give up if I go too much to the Jesus side? I'm afraid. And I'm wondering if some of you can relate to that as well. So what fear is holding you back from fully submitting to Jesus tonight? What fear is holding you back from fully submitting to Jesus tonight? And what is it you're afraid of? Be honest. What you're really afraid of? Don't give me the, the you know, the religious, ah, I don't, you know. What are you really afraid of? Write it down. And then I tell you what, write down some truths that combat that fear. Because we need that. We need truth to combat fear. So write down some truths that you can help overcome the fear in the future. While Peter is denying Jesus, Jesus is being put on trial for a crime he never committed. He knows what is going on, and yet he never wavers. It's amazing. He never loses his determination, his resolve, his commitment to the, to the pursuit of what God the Father has called him to. He's staring down the reality about not just being flogged and beaten and crucified, but he's going to pay the penalty for our sins. He's going to be separated from God. 
and he never flinches, never flinches. I can't help but look in this and say, I want to be like Jesus. When the storms of my life, when suffering, when persecution, when pain comes at me, I want to remain unwavering. I want to remain committed to Jesus. I want to be resolute to say, Jesus, I'm going to stay with you. I'm going to follow what you have for me. I don't want to deny Christ like Peter did. And the reality is for us as believers, why is this important? Number of reasons, but here's the reality. You know, for us as believers in America, I don't think life's going to get any easier. I don't. I think we're going to be forced to give up more of our comforts. We're going to be forced to give up jobs. We're going to be forced to give up some of our freedoms if we stand up and say, I believe in Jesus. So are you ready for that? Am I ready for that? That's the question we got to ask ourselves. And before you say, oh, yeah, I'm ready, bring it on. Just remember, hours before Peter denies Jesus, what did he say? He said, I will lay down my life for you. Hours before that. And then he goes and denies Jesus. Here again, I'm not picking on Peter because ultimately we know he did give up his life for Jesus, didn't he? He did. He did it. But when we look at this and say, if I'm not prepared ahead of time, I too am going to deny Jesus like Peter. You know, the Navy SEALs have a saying, you don't rise to the occasion. You guys know what it is? Some of you probably do. You rise to the level of your training. You don't rise to the occasion. Some people say, I'll rise to the occasion, man. You don't rise to the occasion. You rise to the level of your training. I didn't come here tonight without practicing what I was going to say. You guys don't go out and make a sales presentation without reviewing your pitch deck. Leaders of Heart of Man, we get together every Saturday morning at 7 o'clock for our leaders meeting. Why do we do that? Because we play like we practice. We talk about it all the time. We play like we practice. If we didn't practice, Tuesday nights wouldn't look very good. So that's why we train. The same thing is true about our faith. If we want to stand firm when the storms of life come, we must put into practice the very things of Jesus. Matthew 24, 7, 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, other versions say, put them into practice, will be like a wise man who built his house on what? On a rock. And rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and it beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And when the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blow and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. We got to be ready, guys. What keeps us from being unwavering in our commitment to Jesus? What keeps us from having that same resolve as Jesus? What prevents us from being singularly focused on the mission that God has for us? Guys, why do we build our house on the sand? Why? If we did a survey out here, I'm guessing there'd be a lot of answers. But there's a, one thing that's just been like weighing on me and been, I've been convicted about that I want to talk about just a little bit here in our last few minutes. And it's this fact that as Americans, we operate in a constant state of hurry. There's a book, just quick, John Mark Comer, some, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Some of this that I'm going to share here is, is out of this book. This really impacted me 
And if it impacts you, I'd encourage you to get the book because it's really good, all right? But as Americans, we are one of the busiest cultures in the world. We moved from years ago, several years ago, leisure was a sign of like success, right? Like that's, leisure was like, you made it when you had leisure. Now, you know what? Like busyness is a sign of like, you made it when you're busy. Like that's what we wear as this badge of honor. It's a status symbol. We celebrate Elon Musk and his 100 hour work week. And we make t-shirts and we post videos to Instagram that say, rise and grind, you know, hustle hard. That's what we do, right? That's what American culture is. The problem is busyness and hurriness, hurriness are in direct opposition to Psalm 46. Be still and know that I am God. Busyness and hurry are not what David had in mind when he penned Psalm 23 and he said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. No one lies down when they are in a hurry. John Ortberg once asked the author and theologian Dallas Willard, what must I do to become more of the man that I want to be? I think we can relate to that. I really like, man, what? I'm not the man I want to. I see this vision. I know who I want to be. I want to be that guy, but I'm not him. And so John asked Dallas Willard this question. And when John asked him this question, what must I do to become more like the person I want to be? Willard said simply, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And then he said, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life today. Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life today. Now, I know what you're thinking. Hurry isn't a bad thing. Being busy isn't a bad thing. And let me be clear. I'm all for working hard. Yeah, I grew up Dutch. I'm cheap. I also learned the value of hard work. All right? So I'm all for working hard. But being, being busy and hurrying is not what God calls us to. In fact, I, I would say, you know, culture to, uh, here. In fact, I would rather be accused of being too busy than being lazy, right? That's what most of us say. And I know that's what we think because, again, that's what's been indoctrinated into our minds from American culture. But today's culture isn't shaped by what we're taught in the scriptures. American culture doesn't look like what Jesus teaches in the scriptures. Today's culture is shaped by what? Shaped by money, power, status. So we have decisions based on those things, and suddenly we're in this vicious circle of hurry and busyness, and we're trying to get caught up, and we never feel like we're on top of things. Man, I felt that way recently. I'm just never on top of things. Take a minute to think about a story about Jesus that we've studied in John or any other gospel where you can recall that Jesus was in a hurry. Give me a story where Jesus was in a hurry. I can't see back there. Oh, I don't see any hands go up, right? We could be here all night. There's no story about Jesus being in a hurry in the gospel. That's not how he lived. That's not a character of Jesus. Being in a hurry, if we listed those characters of Jesus, being in a hurry would not be one of them. In fact, I would say that hurry stands in direct opposition of the very nature of who Jesus was and still is today, and that is love. The virtue of love. Think about it. Love and hurry never go together. Love takes time. Hurry is rushing to get as much done in as little time as possible. Love requires attention. Hurry is thinking about everything else you could be doing right now. Love is patient. Hurry is missing what's most important. 
Love is listening. Hurry is having to ask, I'm sorry, what did you say? Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. Hurry doesn't leave room for either one. C.S. Lewis said to walk with Jesus is to walk with a slow, unhurried pace. Hurry is the death of prayer, and it only impedes and spoils our work. It never advances, up, advances it. So what virtue better describes you tonight? Love or hurriedness? Let me ask it another way. Is the you you're trying to be, like the me I want to be, is it Elon Musk or is it more like Jesus? John Ortberg said, for many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith. It is that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it. We will just skim our lives instead of actually living them. I bet if I took a survey, there's a lot of us feel that we're skimming our lives right now. So if you want to stand firm in the face of danger, persecution, and suffering like Jesus, we have to stop being in a hurry. So what's the solution? The solution is really quite simple, isn't it? If I want to be more like Jesus, then maybe I should do more of what Jesus did. Or as pastor and author John Mark Comer, who wrote this book, says, if you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. If I want to experience the life of Jesus, I have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. So what does that lifestyle look like? What are those practices? I'm just going to give a few, and I know, and then we're going to wrap up, all right? Prayer. You know, we see Jesus do this in the lesson tonight, right? Prayer, there's so much we could say about prayer, but let me just, this thought. Prayer is less about getting answers, less about telling God what we need, and more about entering into his presence, aligning our will with his will, not the other way around, our will with his will, and surrendering our lives to him. That's prayer. Study and obedience, these two go hand in hand, right? Knowing and doing. We must study God's word. To be more like Jesus, we gotta study God's word, and then we gotta put it into practice, just like Matthew said, right? Put it into practice. Jesus asked the cup to be removed, but only if it was God's will. To have a house built on a rock, we must put the ways of Jesus into practice. Community. I mean, is there a better lesson for a community tonight? Here's Jesus. He, the, the hardest moment of his life. He's gonna, he's gonna go into this trial and persecution. And what does he said? He says, Peter, James, and John, I need you guys. I need you guys. You gotta come pray with me, man. This is Jesus. Like, did he need it? I don't know. He's God, right? But Jesus, human, said, I need you. Guys, we need community. Don't try to do this thing alone, right? We gotta have community around us. What else do we need? We need solitude, not isolation. We need solitude. There's a big difference. Solitude has a purpose. Isolation is just feeling and being alone. Jesus went on his own to pray and be with the Father. Spending time in solitude has a purpose, and it's the purpose to get closer to God. Concentrated amounts of time in the presence of God change us. Concentrated time in the presence of God change us. Two more, quick, Sabbath. Jesus said, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Guys, we need to take a day of rest and worship. This was on my bucket list, and not bucket list. This was on like coming into the year. I'm like, I want to do better at taking a Sabbath. I 
terrible at this. I suck, all right? It's still a goal of mine because I know I need it and I'm seeing it more and more and more. Again, counter to the world, but we got to take a Sabbath. Jesus said we need it. And then the last one is simplify. Guys, stuff isn't bad, but when it consumes our heart, we have a problem. Quote uh, John Mark Comer one more time. He says, to follow Jesus, especially in the Western world, is to live in the same tension between grateful, happy enjoyment of nice, beautiful things. Grateful, happy enjoyment of nice, beautiful things and simplicity. There's a tension there, isn't there? And we all feel it, especially here. We feel it. And when in doubt, to err on the side of generous, simple living. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, he willingly surrendered his life so that we may spend eternity with him. You and me, we get to spend eternity with him. I pray that we too may give up control of our lives, be more firmly rooted in the way of Jesus, and enjoy forever true communion with him in his kingdom, his kingdom, which as he told Pilate in the lesson tonight, is not of this world. But I wanna be there with you brothers forever in his kingdom. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you that you are in control, that you're sovereign, God. Let us put our faith and trust in you and whatever that looks like for each one of us tonight, God. Let us give up control. Let us be humble. Let us follow you, God. Let us put into practice in our lives the practices that we see in you. Prayer and study and solitude and, and Sabbath and simplicity and just being with you, Lord. Help us. God, we need you. We need that Holy Spirit. Peter failed under his own, but when he had the Spirit, he was powerful. God, you've put the Spirit in our heart. Let us be powerful men this week, God. Go out and empower these men to do great things this week for you. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.